0: Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. Got another great show for you this week. We're going to start off with our usual news of the week. i got a few things to talk about, including Bitcoin uh, and a massive uh, password database that has been found online, the biggest ever. And uh, then we're going to talk about net neutrality. Well, that's been all over the news, so I'm going to kind of give you my take on that and where things stand and where we go from here. And we'll wrap up with the tip of the week for how to shop safely online. We've talked about this at various points, but I know... Some of you out there have got those last-minute deals you want to catch, some last-minute gifts you want to get for the holiday season, and we'll tell you how to do that safely. First up, let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been in the news lately because its value has gone absolutely through the roof. It was about 1000 bucks for a Bitcoin at the start of this year. Back If you go back to January 1st, the, the going rate for a Bitcoin, if you were to exchange that for U.S. dollars, was about 1000 uh, It has recently hit almost $18,000. Uh, it's gone right right through the roof. Looks completely like a, like a bubble ready to burst, but nobody really knows because it's a virtual currency and uh, how do you really predict what it's going to do? So I wanted to kind of talk to you about this. I've really wanted to get an expert on here for a long time to really dive in deep to what Bitcoin is. Um, but today we're just going to talk about it at a high level just so you can understand what it, basically what it is and what what's going on here. So Bitcoin is what we call a cryptocurrency, uh, or at least that's what the industry or the pundits uh, are calling it. I'm not sure how super accurate that is, but I'll explain probably why that why that comes from. Um, and it's a virtual currency, unlike, you know, currency generated by a government like a U.S. dollar or uh, British pound or any of or, or the euro, any of these kind of bank backed um, currencies. uh Bitcoin is decentralized. That was the whole point of of Bitcoin is that it wasn't going to be generated by any single country. It was a, it was a brand new currency developed by this guy uh, named Satoshi Nakamoto. Everybody, well, nobody knows who this guy is. A lot of people believe it's actually a group of people, but it was an extremely clever idea. And what it basically is, is it's what we call proof of work. And he developed this basically a puzzle, a mathematical problem that was hard to solve. And it got progressively harder and harder, exponentially harder and harder as time went on, which is to say that when you first start with this cryptocurrency, it's you, you, you create a new, you mine by when you create a new coin, you mine a coin, and this is all done on a computer. uh, And the computer is set to solve a math problem. And that math problem at the beginning of time was very easy. So Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy who invented this, is on paper a multi-billionaire in terms of Bitcoin value because this guy was the first. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a pyramid scheme. The guy who gets in first is the one who always makes the most money. Uh, so he created this idea of, of a type of currency that could be created by anybody, traded by anybody, uh, in such a way. So there's the two aspects: there's the creation and the trading. So the creation part, and the reason it's probably dubbed a cryptocurrency is, you you're, whenever, oh, how do you explain this? So there's this thing called a hash algorithm, and it's used all the time in cryptography. And what it basically does is you you put in some amount of input; it could be big or small, and what comes out is a fixed size number. Um, it's a very long. Complex number, a certain set of bits, usually 256 bits today, uh, and that number will change drastically based on just one minor change to the input. So the idea being, if if I if I take some digital file, let's say, and I hash that file, I get a certain value. If I change just one tiny thing about that file and rehash it, I get a completely different hash. And it's meant to be a one-way function. So you, you have all this data coming in. Uh, you hash it, and you get an output of a fixed size. So basically what this guy said was, okay, so I want you to prove to me that you can find some input to this hash function that generates a hash where the last digit is zero. Go. So your computer cranks on this, finds a bunch of stuff, and says, oh, hey, here, I, I found a, I found a set of inputs where out of these 256 bits, uh, I, I can show that I've got an input where the last one is zero. That might sound easy, but and it actually for finding one zero, it is pretty easy. That's why the first set of currency is so easy to do. And then after a while, though, now he says, okay, now I want you to find uh, inputs where the last two digits are zero and then three digits and then four. And you can see that over time, it's really hard to predict what the what the hash value is based on the input. So you just have to try a whole bunch of them. And eventually you find, oh, hey, I got lucky. I found, a, I found some random input that when I give it this input, the output has the last three digits of zero. Great. So when I can prove that I've done that to the system and the system is decentralized, it's, it's set on, you know, there are all these nodes around the world that have agreed to participate in this. And, and, and so you kind of show your proof of work and they say, okay, yes, you've mined a Bitcoin. And actually back in the day, I think when you mined it, you got 50 coins at a time, um, and so, but this keeps getting progressively harder. So the whole point of this currency was it would be really hard, it'd become progressively harder and harder to mine over time, which means that the value kind of goes up because it becomes harder to create. So obviously the people got in on the ground floor, they're sitting pretty. They, they were able to create really simple uh, inputs that got these desired outputs. Now, it has gotten to the point where mining cryptocurrency is so expensive because it takes so much amazing computer processing power that often you waste more money in energy on your computing systems to create the coin than the value of the coin. Now, of course, the value of the coins have gone up quite a bit, so that calculus keeps changing. But uh, nevertheless, it's gotten to the point where crypto mining has gotten so specialized and so difficult that the only places that still do it are places that are like near a hydroelectric dam or in a country like China where they can manage to get almost free energy to pay for the, because otherwise the cost, the energy cost in doing it outweighs the value of the coins that you mine. It's gotten that hard to mine. So, but it's obviously still being done because the value is going through the roof. And of course, people now at this point, once the coins are created, you can trade these things like anything else. It's like a commodity. There's a whole stock market kind of exchange going on where you can go to these um go to these markets and say i want to buy bitcoin and then you buy the bitcoin you hold the bitcoin and oh if that price goes up then you could turn around and sell that Bitcoin for a profit so in that way it's kind of like a stock Uh, but the weird thing about this currency of course is that there's nothing backing it whatsoever it's just it's only worth something because people say it's worth something now there are companies that you will take bitcoin as payment so in that sense it's it's it is a currency you can spend it directly as bitcoin uh, or you invest in it and then you cash out and then you, if you've made money, then of course you can spend that money as money, as regular money. So I said there were two parts to this. There's the mining part. That's the creating of the currency. Uh, and then there's the distribution part, the how you get that money around the planet and how you trade that money. Well, the other part of... The other brilliant part of this whole system was normally you would have to go through some central place that would keep this ledger, right? That that would keep track of who owns what, who has what money. When you go to the bank and you deposit money, you know, the actual physical bills that you give them don't necessarily sit in that bank waiting for you to pull back out later. When you pull that money back out, you're pulling out a different set of bills. Um, That bank doesn't keep, you know, every branch doesn't keep all the money that it's, you know, people have at that branch in that in their vault that, you know, that money goes elsewhere. And a lot of times it's just digital, right? But the bank's good for it. You believe in the bank when you give the money to the bank and it's insured by the government usually. Um, and then, you know, so when you go to ask for that money, it gives you money back. Well, Bitcoin doesn't have a central bank. There is no central repository for it. What they did when they invented this, I didn't, again, I'm assuming it's they, um, they came up with this digital distributed ledger system called a blockchain and basically use again using cryptographic techniques to make sure that it cannot be altered that the record that it keeps is uh cannot be hacked or, or or changed it basically keeps an ongoing list of who owns every bitcoin and that list has gotten so huge that the it's like multiple gigabytes now of data because there's this one distributed ledger for all the bitcoin ever that has to be kind of managed throughout the entire world internet, internet uh, and copies of which float around. Um, and whenever you do a transaction, that blockchain, that ledger is updated with your information and then distributed to everybody else. Everybody else on the planet knows that that Bitcoin is Carrie Parker's Bitcoin. Well, actually they don't know Carrie Parker. They just know it belongs to some anonymous digital wallet. That's the other part about Bitcoin. That's so interesting is it's generally anonymous other than when you have to get in and get out. Like when you have to sell the Bitcoin or buy the Bitcoin through a, uh, an exchange that, probably as hard to do anonymously, but if you were to mine that Bitcoin, that was certainly anonymous. And when you, if you were to spend it as Bitcoin, that's pretty anonymous as well. So that's the other interesting part about this digital currency, like it's called cash, like digital cash in the sense that there is no name associated with it, unless you, you know, do something along the way that will tie your name to it. Like again, buy and sell on an exchange or something like that. So Bitcoin has gone through the roof. It's hard to explain why the, the value has gone up so much. It's just one of those speculation markets, and people finally finally gotten wind of it. And the more people that got wind of it and saw the price going up, the more people jump in. So it looks a lot like a bubble. It's hard to say where it's going to end up. But for the most part, until some recent profit taking, it's just gone straight up. So it, it's <laughs> if you got $18,000 laying around, you can go get yourself a Bitcoin and hope that goes up. Of course, you can buy fractions of Bitcoin as well. So you can buy, uh, you can buy just a, little, you can invest a hundred bucks of Bitcoin today if you really wanted to, and you know maybe you'll get lucky and maybe you won't, and the bubble will burst and it'll be worth nothing again. So I am not here, absolutely not here to tell you to go to invest in Bitcoin. I have not, done, I have not done it myself. I just kick myself for not doing it years ago when I first learned about it, uh, like most of us are. <laughs> so, uh, and just for the record, by the way, Bitcoin is only the most popular. There's, uh, there are several other. Cryptocurrencies out there. The Ethereum is, is is very popular. Uh, it's actually ether is what they call it, uh, the, the the coin. Or it's, technically, that's even more abstract. It's not necessarily even a coin, uh, but it has value. Um, and there are several, several others. Um, and they come. Some of them have come and gone. So it's really hard to say. Bitcoin, for whatever reason, is has really taken off to be the master cryptocurrency, but there, there are others and there will be others. So it's very interesting to see where this is going to go. So nothing else. I just wanted to kind of catch you up on that and let you know what all the hubbub was about and uh, explain a little bit about Bitcoin. Hopefully, I'm still trying to find somebody out there who can come on the show and do a much better explanation than I just did of what this stuff really is and what the impacts are going to be going forward, because this is going to be around for a while, I think. But until then, there's your little uh, there's your little nugget for the week on what's been going on with Bitcoin. All right, now, the next little news item I wanted to bring up, uh, there's a research establishment, a threat intelligence um, company or um, organization called 4IQ, and they go looking around the dark web trying to find, you know, password databases, you know, from hackers that have breached places and seeing what's for sale and just kind of going into the darker corners of the Internet to see what they can find out is going on out there. And they ran across this massive database of passwords, 1.4 billion passwords. Usernames and passwords. Uh, they're all searchable. its its They're all in clear text. So they're, they're not even scrambled anymore. Usually when hackers find these things on servers somewhere, they're all scrambled and they download the whole database, which is scrambled. And they, then they go through that database and try to hack it and find out what the real passwords and usernames are. Um, this particular database has already been hacked. It's already been de-scrambled. Uh, all the passwords are right there for you to look at. There's 1.4 billion of them. And like I said, it's searchable. It's like, you know, it's like going to Google and saying, all right, show me all the passwords for, you know, Carrie Parker, C-A-R-U-I-P-A-R-K-A-R and see, you know, show me all the passwords for, you know, pick a username and then or, and it will go and search them all. Show me all the passwords for Yahoo. Cause, uh, there are a lot of these things are in there by email address and, they're all in ClearTech. So the, all the, all these guys got to do is go find these passwords and start trying to use them, um, which is just scary as all hell. But it, it's been out there for a long time. So the other thing that this research agency found is a lot of these passwords are still good. Like while some of them are still old and hopefully have been changed because the the companies that were breached figured out that they were breached and told their clients, hey, everybody go change your password. Um, there's still quite a few of these passwords that are still being able to be used. So my advice, quick advice, of course, um, certainly if you have ever reused a password, if you use one password on one site and use that same password somewhere else, go change it, go change all those passwords, make them all unique. Um, if you know that you're the, that you've been a victim of a breach if some service you've been using has been breached, uh, you, you probably have already done this, but if you haven't change those passwords, make them really long and strong and unique, um, one of the problems that with these password databases and the, one of the reasons they are so, so easy to hack is because they're so easy to guess. Let me just give you a sampling. So of this of this 1.4 billion passwords, someone went through and sorted them all by most common and and <laughs> listen to some of these. the number one most used password in this in this database which has over let me look at the number here almost a million different uses out of this 1.4 billion database. a million of them are one two three four five six. That was the password. You know what the second most common one was? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The third most popular password was QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And if that sounds a little familiar, it's because if you look down at your keyboard, the first six letters on the top of every keyboard is Q-W-E-R-T-Y. So someone thought a great password would be, oh, what if I just take the first six characters on my my, uh, thing, I can just swipe my finger across it. Like doing your finger across piano keys. Uh, so qwerty and the fourth, the fourth most popular password in this database, password, all lowercase, password. Fifth, one 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 one. Sixth, one two three four five six seven eight. Seventh most popular, abc one two three. The eighth most popular, one two three four five six seven. You see some patterns here. Oh, here we go. Now they're starting to get clever. The ninth most popular password in this list was password with the number one at the end. <laughs> oh my gosh. So anyway, let's see. I am trying to find the, what's the firm, the, uh, the next one that's the most interesting. Here's one that's interesting. So the 15th most popular is 1Q2W3E4R5T. Hmm. That sounds like a really tough password, maybe. But if you look at it, that's just the first two rows of your computer. Look, that's the numbers across the top, and then the qwerty. So all it is is one through five and qwerty interleaved together. Anyway, people pick horrible passwords. This this <laughs> this should tell you. And the ones that get hacked right away are the ones that are the worst. So anyway, if you've used any of these passwords, please just go change them. Uh, get yourself a password manager. I happen to like LastPass. There are plenty of others you could look at, like One uh, Password. Uh, just if you just do a, a search on, you know, best password manager, you'll find plenty of options. I happen to like LastPass. Um, but with a password manager, you can generate and save ridiculously long and, and totally random passwords that no one could possibly guess, including these hackers. Um, I would just shoot for 20 characters. Just make it long. Um, that that should work on most places. Some, some of these sites will limit you to 16 characters. Uh, and you'll find that out in LastPass can can tweak that for you. But... Uh, Use use a password manager, save these things off, make sure every site is unique, uh, and that will help to protect you against some of these things. The other thing, of course, is to use two-factor authentication wherever you can. All right, last news story of the week, and it's the biggest, I think, of the week, and certainly the most important, and that is net neutrality. So uh, unless you've been living under a rock, um, you have heard on the news that the FCC last week on a three to two party line vote rolled back the net neutrality rules that were put in place by the Obama administration in 2015. Um, there has been so much news around this, and so much partisan talk. It's so hard to figure out what's true and what's not true. Uh, if you were just to listen to the arguments made, you know, by the commissioner Ajit bai, uh, for repealing this, it would sound so straightforward. It sounds like, oh yeah, that seems reasonable, but it's just not. It most of what they're saying is really twisted. It's not really the truth. And uh, I came across this article that I wanted to to, uh, send off to you. And I'll put the link in the show notes area. And I highly encourage you to read the whole thing. But I'm just going to read you a couple highlights. Uh, It's from Popular Science. And it's called um, 11 Lies About Net Net Neutrality. And these are some of the arguments that were made uh, by the the chairman and the committee, uh, the three members of the committee that wanted to roll back these protections for for net neutrality. I guess before I get into that, let's I'm assuming you guys know what this means by now, but let's just let's just verify that what the term means. So net neutrality was a term coined in 2003 by a guy named Tim Wu and uh, the idea being that all the bits on the internet should be treated equally. There should be a level playing field for all web services, all websites, any anything wanting to use the internet. No, nobody should be treated differently than somebody else. Now it's important to realize that what I'm, I'm saying, nobody, not no thing. So there are certain types of traffic on the internet that we should definitely consider prioritizing. For instance, video traffic, it happens to use a lot of bandwidth, but it's also, we need to make sure those packets get through because if they don't get through in time, the video looks crappy. Now, if you're just sending an email or surfing the web, those things could be more bursty and it doesn't have to be super fast. Uh, Those are the kind of things that we can deprioritize, but it's by the type of traffic, not by the website that you're going to or or the service that you're trying to use. That is a huge distinction. So it's like saying, you know, we should treat semi trucks differently than we treat bicycles. But we're not saying we should treat uh, Mack trucks differently than, oh, gosh, what are some other diesel companies? (laughs) Uh, Volvo, I think, meets the big trucks. So, you know, it's not by brand. It's not by who owns those things. It's by the type. It makes sense. If you've got an 18-wheeler, that's going to, you know, those need to have certain regulations and rules. Uh, And, you know, maybe they get certain lanes on the highway. Uh, whereas bicycles, you know, we don't, I don't care if it's a Schwinn or a Huffy or whatever bike it is, but if it's a bike, it's fundamentally different than a semi-trailer. So it, it's fine to treat things in, in general classes like that, but where you don't want to do it is by brand name. That's where this all breaks down. Um, so let me give an example. And, um, so Netflix, everybody loves Netflix and it's a streaming service, right? You get that through the internet. Well, some of these internet service providers and that's, we're really talking about the internet service providers here. These are the guys that are making out like bandits from all this stuff. And these are the guys that have given lots of money in lobbying to a lot of these people to get these rules lifted because they want to be able to charge what they want to charge. Um, And they also want to potentially uh, charge more for their competitor stuff than their own, which would put a thumb on the scales of the market, which is usually Republicans are against. Um, So and the other problem, of course, with ISPs is that they're all virtual monopolies. We don't have choices. It's not like you can say, "Well, if this guy is, you know, if this if this ISP is treating you badly, well, they'll just go get some other ISP and then they'll learn." Well, a lot of people don't have a choice. I think I read somewhere like 50 million Americans only have one basic broadband uh, broadband provider. So anyway, um, that's a little bit about what neutrality, net neutrality means, and what it is. Let me just read you a couple of these articles or a couple of points of this um, article. So there were 11 lies that they pointed out. I want to pick three of them and then I'll encourage you to go read the article for the rest. Um, here's one. I'm just going to read these to you. This is again, this is from Popular Science. It's a really good article. Uh, the first lie I'm going to read. Most people wanted this to happen. So there were no public hearings about the repeal of net neutrality, despite the urges of FCC Commissioner Rosenwor. Ooh, I'm going to miss that Rosenworcel. Um, it had been called capricious and overreaching, which is one of the primary legal arguments for overturning the ruling. During the comment period, Congress received more than a million phone calls, tens of millions of emails, and wide-reaching polls showed that the majority of Americans opposed the repeal. The FCC wrote off, writes off these uh, comments by stating that, quote, the commenting process is not an opinion poll, unquote, and then suggesting that Russian hackers or operatives sent the emails. So that's that's the first line I'm going to read to you. So this was a highly unpopular move that these guys made. They tried to make it sound like it was for the benefit of the people. It just wasn't. Uh, just about everybody has figured out that this is not good for them. This is only good for the Internet service providers. So anyway, first line, here's the next one. Everything was great back before 2015. The original net neutrality rules didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, there were several rather important things that happened before they were put in place. uh, Perhaps the biggest issue happened in 2014 when Level 3, a telecommunications company that helps ISPs connect to the internet, found major ISPs throttling internet speeds on services like Netflix. In 2012, AT&T blocked users on its lower-tier services from using Apple's FaceTime video chat feature, a a move that caused huge public outcry. When Google announced its Wallet app, mobile providers tried to block it from block it for competing with their own solutions. AT&T tried blocking Skype to cut down on competition with its own services or look to other parts of the world. KPN, a telecom company in the Netherlands, tried to apply an extra tariff on messaging apps, forcing people into buying texting plans that worked on their cellular network. The move was blocked by the government. So again, it's you know, the FCC was trying to say, oh, back before 2015, when these quote unquote burdensome regulations were, were put into place, everything was great. The Internet was thriving. There were no abuses of this of this um, of net neutrality. And there actually were several. Uh, and these are just a few. There were there were more than that. Basically, these ISPs were allowed to change the way the Internet worked by either slowing down or blocking traffic to their competitor sites or to sites that, uh, that didn't pay them an extra fee in favor of ones that did. So it's a pay to play scenario. So they do this to Netflix as well. They basically caused Netflix to pay them more money, uh, to access their networks when they had competing content that didn't have to go through that. So this totally messes up the market dynamics. And what this is really going to do is screw the next little guy, the next Netflix, the next Google, the next Amazon, the next one of these webs, Hulu or whatever, these next companies that come along that want to try to compete against the incumbents and just can't because they can't pay to play. Uh, and so they're they're going to get crushed. And I understand that the ISPs are saying that, you know, if you're going to use a lot of bandwidth, then you should pay more money. Then that's fine. If that's the case, then we should have a tiered system where, you know, if you're a super high bandwidth user, then you should pay more than somebody who just surfs the web. Um, so if you're, you know, watching gigabytes of movies every day, that's different than someone who's just going a little online shopping, checking Facebook and sending a few emails. And I'm fine with that. But that, you know, it, that's at least transparent. And the, what that says is if you use more then it's like your water bill, if you use more water, you should spend more money. Uh, if you use more electricity, you should you should spend more money than somebody that doesn't. But that is not what the that's not the way these plans are set up. And also, these guys are basically monopolies. They they want to get away with charging more money where they can, and they'll do it every chance they get. And these rules that have just been rolled back are going to let them do that. Now, they're probably not going to do it out of the gate. They're probably smart enough to, to hold back and do this slowly. But it's like the old frog in boiling water thing, right? You put him in the warm water, and you slowly turn it up, and he never realizes he's boiling. Um, we're going to realize it because it's going to be bad. <laughs> All right, one more that I want to read from this, and then we'll move on. The last lie that I want to pick out of this one is that net neutrality is all the way dead and there's nothing that can save it. While it's true that the FCC has officially voted to nullify the adoption of net neutrality rules, there are still several possible roadblocks for the repeal. The Congressional Review Act... CRA gives Congress 60 working days to evaluate and ultimately overturn the decision. It would require a resolution of disapproval, which requires a majority vote. Since Republicans have the majority, a vote along party lines would fail. But during the lead up to the vote, several Republican members of Congress sent letters asking to delay the vote so it could receive more research and public comment. So it's we're not done. It was it was a major setback that this happened, but it was pretty much a fait accompli. We knew this was going to happen. Uh, There was really nothing to stop it. We, you know, we tried our hardest. We sent in all sorts of phone calls and comments. They ignored all of that. Uh, And but there are several members of Congress, uh, including some Republicans that are saying this was not done properly, that if nothing else, we need to spend some more time on this have some public hearings. You know, the the public commenting system was a total shambles. Uh, There were lots of fake comments put in there and they could have been from both sides. We don't know, but they refuse to even look at it, um, so we really should get that sorted out. It, they really just rushed this through, and it's a shame. Um, so, but we're not done yet. We can still fight this, and if, obviously, we had these things in the first place, and now they're taken away. We can always get them back. So, reach out to your Congress people, reach out to your representatives, let them know you care about this, let them know that you like this, that you don't like this decision that was made, that net neutrality does matter, and that you care about it. All right, that's the news of the week, and let's wrap up with our tip of the week. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about shopping online safely. We've talked about this over the, uh, over the podcast before, but, uh, you know, with the holiday season around here and people doing their online shopping, I want to make sure that we're doing it safely. So a couple tips for doing that. First of all, use a credit card, not a debit card. Uh, that's true of just about all, any online shopping because it's it's so much easier to get your money back if there's some sort of a fraud or a problem. Uh, with a credit card based purchase, with a debit card based purchase, that money is out of your account. The money's actually gone. Whereas a credit card, it's really basically a loan that, that you haven't actually spent that money yet. It's not coming out of your account yet. Um, if they get a hold of your debit card, if someone steals your debit card credit, uh, credit card number, they can drain your account. And that's horrible where and you'd have to somehow fight to get that money back with a credit card. If these things happen, uh, as long as you report it right away, you're not liable for anything. So I highly encourage you to use credit cards instead of debit cards. So speaking of credit cards, the next part of the tip is to not save your credit card information on the websites that you go to. Now you know, for me, I shop at Amazon.com all the time, so I you know it's worth it to me just to save my information there. But if you use a password manager that's built into your web browser, like LastPass, you could save your credit card information in the in the password manager, which is very secure, uh, and then have it autofill that information for you. So the convenience of having that information saved is handled in one central place by a very secure tool and that's your password manager. And if you're going to just a, if you're going to a website where you're not going to shop very often, I would highly recommend you don't save your credit card information with them. Save it in your password manager and then when you come back, you can just a single click and say yes, fill in this credit card information. And that will get you the same convenience without having that same information spread all over the internet with websites that you have no idea how secure they are now again big retailers like amazon i think you're fine there if you want to save your information there that makes sense uh, and especially if you're going to shop there a lot but uh, for all other sites for any other sites that are going to be small that you're not going to make many purchases at, i would just say put it in your password manager instead and then you uh, you can just autofill it from your password manager when you come up to the the place where you got to fill out the credit card info And last but not least, uh, look into one-time credit card numbers. This is great, again, for sites that you're not going to go to very often. Uh, There's not too many banks that do this, unfortunately. But if you've got a Bank of America or a Citibank credit card, they do offer this service. You'll have to kind of dig around to find it. But basically, uh, each of them works slightly differently. But the idea being is you go and say, okay, I want to create a a one-time-use credit card or a credit card that is only ever going to be used for this particular place, and it's going to have this maximum value on it. And you and that limits what can be done with that credit card, either by a certain amount or by a certain retailer. And that can be very handy and it's very secure. Yeah, it's an extra step. It's kind of a pain in the butt. But again, if you want to buy something online, you're kind of worried about using your credit card number and giving them your real credit card information. Uh, if you happen to have a Bank of America card or a Citibank card, uh, you can go to those websites and request a virtual credit card number that will only be good for a certain retailer or for a certain amount of time or for a certain amount of money. Uh, And that will limit your exposure. Now, the only problem with this thing sometimes is is if you were to use it like, let's say, at Best Buy. Like if you buy something at Best Buy and you have it picked up in the store, they want you to present the credit card that you use to purchase that when you pick it up. If it's a virtual credit card, you obviously can't do that. So you will have to be wary of some of those kind of things. Also, for refunds um, and, and things like that and returns. Uh, sometimes that gets a lot more complicated if you have a virtual credit card, because again, they want to put that money back on your card. And if that was a one-time use card, you can't really put it back to that. So there are some downsides to it, but, uh, it, it could be a, an interesting way to limit your exposure on some of these websites where you're buying, uh, buying things that you are only going to buy once or, um, very infrequently. All right. The only other thing, of course, is, and we should all know this by now, is when you're doing your online shopping, look for the lock symbol or the, the HTTPS uh, on the website, to making it secure. Most browsers now will actually warn you if you're trying to enter some credit card information on a site that's not secure. And almost every website now today is secure. It's, it's something that's you don't even have to think about too much anymore. But, you know, if you're, especially if you're going to some mom-and-pop site or some small site or a foreign site, Uh, to purchase something just make sure that you've got a secure connection it's usually a lock icon or it says https or um, sometimes it's uh, the little name of the site is in green uh, in your web browser address bar Uh, look for those things just to make sure it's secure all right and that's going to do it for this week Hopefully you learned some things again this week. And of course we've got another show next week, uh, coming up. I'll have, uh, just like we kind of had a special Christmas show or a holiday show for shopping, I'm going to have a new year's resolution show coming up before the end of the year. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And as always, I'll bring you all the news that I think is important and try to explain it in the ways that make sense. Hopefully I'm doing that for you. And, uh, You can help me to help you and to help others. You can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Always looking for some extra supporters there and helping me spread the word. I would very much appreciate that. Of course, you can also buy my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons on Amazon. Uh, It's a great stocking stuffer. It's really good for people just getting brand new computers or brand new smart devices uh, who just need some extra help getting their stuff secure and to guard their privacy. It's a great gift. Over 100 tips. Uh, step-by-step instructions and pictures and the whole bit it's very easy to follow and it's very very easy to read i tried to, to, to write this book in a way that was entertaining uh, and, and accessible by really just about anybody all right and that will do it so until next week as always don't get caught with your drawbridge down take care everybody